Who do people say that you are? If I were to ask seven different people who know you to tell me in one word or one sentence who you are, I know that they would all give me a different answer. Sure, each word or sentence would most likely be related, and some of the things said might even be close to the same. But I guarantee you that each person would describe you from their own unique perspective and understanding in a slightly different way, starting with the relationship that that person has with you. I actually thought about this question again on Friday evening when we were gathered here in the church with a wonderful crowd of people for Mother Lisa's priestly ordination service. There were many faces I recognize. Some of you who are here today were at that service. But there were also an equal number of people that I had never laid eyes on before. I knew that would be the case for such a special event as that one. So I mentioned in the sermon I preached that night that I bet most of the people in the church, aside from probably myself and Bishop Howard, had known Lisa for a good portion of her life. And we have to remember, Lisa's quite young, so we're not talking about a whole lot of years here. But even if that were the case, and even if every single person had followed Lisa every step from her birth onward, I still imagine that if you ask each one of them who they knew Lisa Miro to be, nearly every one of them would have a slightly different answer. Certainly, there'd be similarities, but because we know someone and come to identify them based solely on our personal relationships with them and on the memories that are created, through our personal understanding, there's guaranteed to always be some differences in our descriptions of them. This morning in Mark's gospel, we find Jesus asking his disciples to tell him who the people in the villages and the communities around Galilee are saying that he is. And just as I've said about humanity already, the disciples themselves are already hearing a variety of different takes on who the people believe this Jesus of Nazareth to actually be. The disciples of Jesus begin answering his question by telling him that many of the people who've watched and listened are beginning to believe that Jesus must be John the Baptist. John was a figure who, of course, would have been familiar to all the people that would have hung in Jesus' circles then, just as much as John the Baptist has become so familiar to all of us who are Christians today. After that, a few of his disciples apparently take it up one more level, chiming in to say that some of the people in those communities think Jesus could actually be the prophet Elijah. Now for Jews, Elijah was the greatest of the Hebrew prophets following Moses. Elijah was one of the select few individuals in all of Holy Scripture, along with Enoch, who does not die but rather is taken up to be with God, which for Elijah, for those who remember the story, is in a great chariot of fire. Many Jews then and now are still waiting for Elijah to be the one who will come and announce the Messiah. During the Passover today, Jewish families still pour a cup of wine and leave a seat empty for Elijah around their tables during the Seder meal, just in case Elijah should finally appear unexpectedly. So if Jews 2,000 years ago thought Jesus was the prophet Elijah, 
There were obviously some thinking of him as someone far more important than even that wild man in the desert, John the Baptist. But of course, what Jesus is really after this morning is finding out who his disciples, his closest friends and followers, say that he is at this important midpoint in his life and ministry in Mark's gospel. If some people who have only heard Jesus a few times are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or some other great prophet, then who do the disciples, the very group of men who are walking with Jesus day in and day out, who do they believe Jesus to be? Now, in Mark's gospel, we have no idea how long it takes all the disciples to sort out their answer. All we know is that immediately it is Peter who finally speaks up and makes what has become known as his great confession. And it is simply this, Lord, you are the Messiah. Now, each and every time I read this famous story of Peter's confession, I always finding myself wishing that could not it have ended right there. Peter gets it right, all is well, nothing else needs to be said. But unfortunately for St. Peter, his confession of faith doesn't seem to hold up very long after Jesus begins teaching. For as soon as Jesus begins to lay out exactly what God's greater plan is, that the Messiah must actually suffer, that the Messiah must be rejected by the Jewish authorities and then be executed so that he may three days later rise from the dead, St. Peter immediately begins to lose his grip and to have second thoughts about the whole thing altogether. Mark says that Peter takes Jesus by the arm, he leads the Lord to a quiet place, and he rebukes Jesus for this teaching. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew's version of this very same story, Peter actually has something to say to Jesus at this moment. He says to Jesus, this must not happen to you. And Peter says this because he knows from the Jewish messianic teachings that Messiah was supposed to be from the line of King David, not a rejected and defeated and executed criminal. It's also a high probability that Peter is also having trouble with what Jesus is revealing because he's smart enough to pick up on the implications of not only what this means for Jesus, but also what it must be meaning for Peter and for those disciples proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. If the Messiah must suffer, if the Messiah must be rejected and executed, well, doesn't that mean that Peter and the disciples themselves must be ready to face that very same thing? I always hear this and find myself reminded of just how hard our confession, which we make in church every Sunday, is for all of us if we dig into it. Because whether we want to admit it or not, we often do the very same thing that Peter is doing, even if we're not aware of what we're doing at the time. Very often, if we're honest, we really have a hard time accepting what we are professing with our lips on Sunday morning about Jesus and about our faith. Jesus, though we say in the creeds that he is the very son of God, that he's the Christ from the Greek Christos, which means anointed one, the Messiah, because those implications of that statement demand so much and because they're so great, don't we almost immediately 
find ourselves moving back into the rational side of things and reconstructing that proclamation. Jesus is the Christ today because he was an inspiring human being just like us. Or maybe he was an eloquent moral philosopher, a teacher, or a faith healer, perhaps. Maybe even a political revolutionary, just like the political revolutionaries we ourselves look up to in our own party line. That makes what we say about Jesus much more comfortable, doesn't it? Something that is easier for us to grab, grab a hold of and to embrace that doesn't require that much from us or from our already busy lives that demand so much of us. And then by doing this, it easily transforms the way we see the church as well. If we don't have to move beyond the natural into the supernatural with Jesus, then the church can just be something a little more comfortable that we partake in on a Sunday morning when we have a little bit of time. But we have to be honest That is not the faith that we are confessing to believe in. The faith we confess is something that we are proclaiming to believe is here to shape this world and not something that the world shapes into what our culture or society expect it to be or what we want it to be and have time for. And it's the very same thing with Jesus, the center of our faith, the one that we will say is the son of the living God, the Messiah, the anointed one, God among us in human form, sent down to redeem this world. And finally, if we believe it, fulfill and restore creation to what God began it to be all the way back in the beginning. Faith and religion, Jesus and the cross They're always meant to be demanding. They are meant to require work. They ask so much of us because, brothers and sisters, the promise is so great for us and for humanity. Peter really didn't have much of a way of understanding that when he rebuked Jesus in Mark's gospel 2,000 years ago. But we, as the children of God, have had all of that time since then to dig into this confession to meditate on it, to parse it out, and to come to some understanding with it and what it says. That's where the creeds we profess, the prayers that we say, the prayer book that we open every Sunday comes from. How can we know who Jesus really is and yet still in our overexerted physical life rebuke him when we feel our faith is demanding just a little too much of us? I'd like to be able to say to all of you this morning that when we do that, Jesus simply says, hey, my bad, I went a little too far. Sermon's going too long. I get that. Church is lasting a little bit beyond the timeline. Don't worry about it. But unfortunately, that's not what Jesus' reply is to Peter this morning, is it? Rather, Jesus says something quite strongly to his greatest saint, Peter. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life. 
Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ouch. Brothers and sisters, our mission as a church is to do one thing and one thing only. To give all that we can give to build up that kingdom of God which Jesus announces and proclaims. That is our profession of faith every single Sunday. And in order to do that, it calls on all of us and on all Christians to know and believe that Jesus is nothing less than what we say he is. Nothing less than the Son of God that can and will transform and resurrect our damaged, fallen, violent, darkened world. And if we believe that, then there just isn't any time to spare. Jesus needs us now. He calls on us to live into what we confess and what we say, to find time for our spiritual life in our busy materialistic world, and to get involved and contribute to the life and ministry of the church, and to place our faith at the top of our priority list and not down at the bottom. Trust me, I know that we are very busy people. We have so much to do. We have jobs. Some of us have three-year-old children who drive us crazy. Some of us have commitments. But if we really believe what we say we believe, then what cross could ever be too large to bear for the reward of a real, fulfilled, eternal life right now and forever? Jesus asked all of his disciples, who do you say that I am? I believe we know that answer. Let us find a way to live it and to put it into action each and every day. Amen.